You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 Newsletter. Today, we are speaking with Senator Tim Scott, a Republican of South Carolina. We're going to talk about the future of American politics, the future of the Republican Party, and of course, his new book, America, A Redemption Story. Senator Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Leanne. Good to be with you. Appreciate it. Um, first, to our audience, I want to remind you that we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, please tweet at us at Post Live, and we will try to get your questions asked. Senator Scott, so of course your book comes out when there's a lot of news. Um, <laughs> so I must start with the news of the day regarding this uh, FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, the search warrant that came out Friday, it shows that some documents are labeled TSSCI, which is considered some of the most classified information. Does that warrant an FBI search? You know, I, I still think this is an unprecedented, alarming uh, occurrence without any question. I, I look back at the comments made by Paul Callan, uh, the CNN analyst, legal analyst, who said that this is daring and dangerous on behalf of the DOJ. I agree with that assessment. There is not much that so far that's come out. And frankly, uh, this is going to be a he said, she said, whether or not the president declassified documents or not. So there's a lot to be learned. But the truth of the matter is I'm still in the position that ultimately this uh, breaks the precedence of the last 232 years, quite dangerous. And I have not heard enough information that changes my opinion whatsoever. On the flip side, does a former president taking class such highly classified documents also break precedent? And is there any sort of level of concern regarding these documents that would elevate for you that the government tries to get these documents back? Well, Ian, my understanding is whether it was Bush, Obama, Clinton, one thing, or President Trump, the one thing that seems to be consistent is there's always been a a, a tug of war, so to speak, over which documents the president, former president gets to keep and which ones they don't get to keep. So this negotiation has been going on for a while, number one. Number two, I suggest that uh, since at least February and June, it seems like the president, President Trump, was cooperating with the DOJ as it relates to or uh, with the, the archives to which, which documents should be or should not be kept. Uh, he has come out with a very clear statement that says he declassified the things that he has in his possession. There's some questions about the rest of the uh, material that was found. But so far, what I would say is that I am not alarmed whatsoever. Uh, I look forward to hearing more about it, but this is still a very disturbing uh, situation and circumstance. So consistent with the negotiations that have gone on with previous presidents, we find ourselves in the midst of that negotiation that seemed to be going fine, fine according to what we all saw, according to the June letter emails. Uh, this is a, a strong inconsistent departure from the way things seem to be going at that time. Well, just to clarify, the National Archives put out a statement regarding that allegation that Obama took some documents. They said that they are in possession of all of the Obama documents and the classified that are going to a, a, the Obama Library in Chicago. And also um, they are in possession in a D.C. facility of the classified Obama documents. But 
Over the weekend, the a Republican Marco Rubio and a Democrat Mark Warner, the chair and uh, a ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, they sent a letter to the FBI and the ODNI asking for what the classified documents are, were and what sort of security concerns uh, that they arise. Do you support the, that bipartisan letter and calling for more information and getting those documents in a classified setting? I think the more the American people understand and appreciate about this uh, raid, the better off we are as a country. Mm -hmm. And one thing that has, one piece of fallout from this has been the escalation and the concerns of violence, especially against federal law enforcement. My colleague at the Washington Post reported this weekend, her name's Anna Phillips, she reports that the DHS and the FBI put out a joint bulletin warning of violent threats against federal law enforcement courts, government personnel, and facilities since the Mar-a-Lago seizure. Um, some of these threats have been online, talking about a civil war and a call to arms. Is that concerning to you? And should Republicans who have made these incendiary statements coming to conclusions about why this happened, do they bear any responsibility? Well, that's a good question, Leon. I'd say that the uh, question that I ask as a guy who has someone incarcerated for threatening my life and another person who also threatened my life, I can tell you as a federal official who has felt hunted that it is concerning. We should all be concerned. We should also be concerned about the media's push in the direction of more volatile information that seems to push our country in the wrong direction. Uh, I will say that as a victim of that situation, I know firsthand how troubling and concerning that is. We, we, we should try to help our entire country lower the temperature by the way that we report the news and not draw conclusions. It seems like too often predetermined outcomes drive news cycles. And I will say that that is unfortunate. And I will say that as I look back at the history of the Washington Post and frankly, having uh, you all dig through my family's history just to figure out whether or not my grandfather's story was consistent with what I said it was, and of course you all found out that it was, uh, is, is harmful. The fact that the New York Times refused to publish an op-ed that I wrote about minority rights uh, because Chuck Schumer didn't sign off on that, that, that's harmful. It only exacerbates the situation that our country is under. So what you were referring to was a fact check by our fact checker, Glenn Kessler, uh, who did look into your family's history. And, uh, you know, the three, post three or four has months been, worth of that is, is uh, at least troubling. Yeah. And the post position is, of course, we do look into to family histories um, and that there has been it was rigorously, uh, rigorously researched and conducted. Um, but I do want to move on because there's so many other things that we want to talk I, but about. I, I think, this, Leanne, this really does lay the foundation of your concerns. I think there are merited concerns. It's when, when there is this feeling that there is a witch hunt, so to speak, that consistently drives people uh, into a bit of a lather, it is hard to see that not having a negative impact on the American people. So. I would say that we should all be alarmed, but we should be very aware of the powerful tools that the media has and how you use it has consequences. And what about just reporting what Republicans say, including someone like Congressman Ronnie Jackson, who says, quote, tonight the FBI officially became the enemy of the people. Uh, Republicans have called the FBI deep state, um, called said that there's been a weaponization of the FBI, defund the FBI. Do do 
um, members of Congress, elected officials have a responsibility in their words as well and not coming to conclusions before the facts are borne out. Yeah, I certainly think that we all should be, we should all take the responsibility on our own shoulders for the words that we use. And one of the reasons why I referred back to a CNN legal analyst as it relates to his words on daring and dangerous is because I think that is more consistent with many of the readers. I, I want to make sure that I'm not just using the right side of the aisle to make my determinations on what should or should not be done. I do think the country is healthier when we have an objective approach to really important issues once in 232 years. I think we should all hope that the truth is going to be come out, will come out as quickly as possible. That will benefit all of us. But I do not think that those of us who are alarmed by the raid, that we are out of step with, uh, with, with what's important to this country. Does the increased violence, um, the violent rhetoric, the violent threats in our American rhetoric these days, does it make it more difficult to speak out against forces on your side? You know, and I'm saying your side because you are a Republican. So regarding the former president, for example, he has a very, very intense following. Is it hard to speak out against him because his followers are so supportive and might turn against you? Well, that's a good question. I would say that without any question that what's really difficult is for us to look at the inconsistent application of the legal system and what that foretells for the future of this country. One of the things that I think that many on the right take into consideration is the consistent uh, application of justice towards the president in the way that it has happened for the last six years, frankly, that does enrage many of his supporters and, and me to be included in that conversation. When you think about the, the Mueller, the Mueller investigation, you think about the Russia collusion, you think about the Steele dossier, and, and you think about the millions and millions of dollars that have been spent looking for something that has not yet been found, that is very disturbing. I, I do believe that every single person should be responsible for their actions. I, I don't necessarily agree, Leanne, with the framing of the conversation or the question so far. The question seemed to suggest that there are issues on the right that don't exist on the, on the left, and, and that's not been my experience. And frankly, uh, many of the issues and challenges that many elected officials face, including me, come from the comments and the bigotry of the left. So there, there should be an equilibrium and enough information and enough time spent on both sides of that conversation for the American people to truly appreciate what's happening within the halls of justice, so to speak. And that is fair. Um, but you are a member of the right of a Republican Party, yes, which is why I'm asking I am you about that. So um, one thing, though, it's been five years since Charlottesville. And you write yes. about this in your book. Um, and you say, um, you write that you recommend that only speak out against Donald Trump if it's absolutely necessary. And that was a moment um, that you thought was absolutely necessary. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. In my book, America Redemption Story, I tell, the, I tell how I created Opportunity Zones in the aftermath of the Charlottesville situation where I spoke out against the president, clearly thought it was necessary, and still am thankful that I did. The country 
improved and, and got better because of the conversation that I had with President Trump as it relates to the creation of opportunity zones. At the end of that conversation that I had with the president in the Oval Office, the one thing he said to me was, help me help those I've offended. And the answer I had was opportunity zones. So I am thankful that as I speak uh, to the president about some of the challenges that he and I have had over certain certain situations and circumstances, that uh, he's been quite receptive. And what I try to do in my book, America Redemption Story, is to tell both sides of the ledger. I, I don't sugarcoat some of the disagreements, but I also tell the end of those disagreements. And I, I would love for that to be the way that we hear stories uh, all over the country, both sides of the ledger. On, on Opportunity Zones, um, you are exploring legislation to improve them. Um, yes, you are absolutely right that after Charlottesville, you know, th this discussion um, that you had with the president led to Opportunity Zones, which passed rather quickly through Congress. Um, what needs to be fixed? Where have they fallen short? And let me actually tell our audience what they are. These are areas to provide to help to provide economic incentive in um, lower income communities, communities with few opportunities. Um, but what needs to be improved, Senator? Yeah, so one of the things that I think would be very helpful uh, on both sides of that ledger I was just talking about is to make sure that those who are investing in opportunity zones, that they report to the IRS uh, what it is that they did with the resources and where they invested it, and what's the outcome? Because I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, I'm sure, that if the opportunity zones are not actually benefiting the underlying community, then, then we're missing the mark completely and they should be recalibrated. It's one of the reasons why uh, Cory Booker and I are working on that next iteration of opportunity zones to make sure that reporting requirements are part of that task. We also use a new market tax credit as the definition for low income areas, be it rural America or the urban areas. And I would love to give the governors another opportunity to redesignate areas, to expand those zones and to eliminate some that are now improving so much so that, that they're, not, they're not necessary to stay in the Opportunity Zone program. Um, you know, you spoke out after Charlottesville, uh, you, know, you know, the right to the uh, Unite the Right rally. Um, you talk in your book a lot about race um, and about your family history and how race has really impacted and, but also um, helped for you to be who you are, for example. What sort of, and you spoke out and your words mattered after Charlottesville as the only black Republican Senator. Um, what, do you feel frustrated um, in our discussions that we've had over the years? There's, on the one hand, you feel like you are labeled the token Republican by Democrats. Um, and then on the other hand, you have expressed some frustration that perhaps sometimes re some Republicans or some people, I should say, think that, that um, you know, pro all the progress that has had is kind of the end of the road here. So what sort of responsibility do you feel on this issue of race being a black Republican? And is it a lot on your shoulders? Thank you, Leanne, for the question. There's no doubt that there are uh, three African-Americans in the Senate, two are, are Democrats, and I, I am the sole Republican. Hopefully we'll have a, a, another one join us real soon here in, in November. Uh, I would say that the, three, uh, the pressure and the challenges <laughs> that come with uh, me being the uh, sole Republican in the Senate 
it comes with an additional burden. There's no doubt about that. I won't pretend that it does not. I think part of it is the uh, the level of just really animosity and animus that comes from certain corners of the country uh, that just don't like folks who are out of step with what they believe should be the way that minorities are seen in this country. That's been quite unfortunate as I've watched people call me uh, racially uh, provocative words and names. It's been uh, quite challenging for for so many folks around the country to, to pay attention to the uh, the strong rebuke that I get from progressives. Uh, you heard recently uh, one of the MSNBC folks called uh, Herschel Walker uh, a Negro and how Republicans like their Negroes. It, it's th- that kind of bigotry that goes unanswered by so many folks in the progressive media space that I think does damage to the country. And for those kids who would like to just grow up and think for themselves and be who they want to be, there's, 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 a, there's a weight on their shoulders that says, don't step out of line. Uh, for, for a guy like me, I'm going to be fine. One of the things I, I've learned to live with is that I don't take criticism from people I would not take advice from. Uh, and so that's a really important part of who I am and how I see the world. Um, you know, we've talked about this in the past, and you wrote uh, a piece in the Washington Post, an opinion piece, a couple years ago, um, saying sometimes people think it says some in our party wonder why Republicans are constantly accused of racism. It is because of our silence. You know, this was in 2019 that you wrote that. Is no that we, still- we- Go ahead. Is that something that you? Is that something that the Republican Party there, needs to be I, more? I, absolutely. To spend more time going where they're not invited so that we are able to show our success and our progress. And if you are silent on some of the important issues, uh, your silence can can in part be taken in a negative light. And so I do think that we should do a better job of speaking out and speaking up, particularly when the facts are consistently on our side. Our policy positions have been very helpful within minority communities, but we have to share that message and, and and show our affection by being present. So those are two things that I think we as Republicans can do a better job of. In your book, you also write about January 6th. Um, you tell an anecdote which uh, was really powerful and interesting and not something that I had heard. Um, when after the senators were evacuated to the safe room in the Hart building, uh, you describe senators yelling at each other and blaming each other. Um, and then you went up and you said, uh, we need to calm down here. And you encouraged uh, the Senate Reverend Barry Black, chaplain, excuse me, Barry Black, to come and offer a prayer. Um, you know, did that shift the mood in that room that night? It, it did. You know, one of the things you'll 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 read about in America Redemption Story is how the power of Chaplain Black really brought the temperature down. Typically, when temperature temperatures are high, thinking is low. And so, ultimately, good news. Chaplain Black went up and said a prayer. And the, and there are many people in the in the Senate of different faiths, but we all respect and appreciate Chaplain Black's service. Uh, and so you saw Republicans and Democrats huddling together, talking, as opposed to people sometimes of the same party yelling at each other and, and trying to make their voices heard. The truth is that at that moment, the temperature dropped and people started communicating. The chaos always goes down when communication goes up. And it was a powerful moment that I was so thankful to see us 
start working together and creating a plan to go back out and finish the day's work. You also write that whatever you thought about the 2020 elections, um, that January 6th was, quote, wrong. But nowhere in the book Absolutely. did I nowhere in the book did I see you say whether you thought the 2020 election was stolen or if it was legitimate. What do you think about that election? Was Joe Biden legitimately the winner of that election? I know that you guys must have wished I wrote a book about President Trump, but I didn't. Um, the truth is, in America, redemption story, I write about a lot of stories, a lot of topics uh, that I think are incredibly interesting, uh, many of which we're not covering. We seem to be covering President Trump and what happened with President Trump. And I didn't write a book about President Trump, but I have said several times, and I will continue to say, President Biden was elected to be the president of this country. That's uh, not, not an issue for me whatsoever, one that we should all have moved on from. And frankly, one of the reasons why I continue to focus on the story of redemption uh, in my book is because I do think it's better for us to focus our attention on the things that we have in common and build bridges to the future as opposed to the division that's easy for us to basically stoke the embers into flames. Speaking of redemption, you know, you talk a lot about people who don't agree with you that um, you should look at those people and still love them. You have page 84, actually, there's a whole page about that. Is this country going through a bit of an identity crisis? Does this country need some redemption at this point? Yeah, I do think that we are better together. And some of the reasons why we are better together, I, I speak about in that book on how people of good conscience, Republicans and Democrats, black folks and white folks work together to help me, especially as a young kid, understand the power of thinking and thinking for myself. Uh, I was taught uh, really how to think and not what to think. Uh, today's culture, we seem to be indoctrinating people as opposed to setting them free to to pursue their best outcomes based on what they conclude for themselves. So I think the country is in a bit of a, I wouldn't call it an identity crisis, but I would say that we are pondering what the future looks like together. I think we'll come to the right decision without any question. I'm bullish about the future of America. And one of the reasons why I end my, my book about the year 2070, I'm hoping that all Americans, we can play a part in building the next American century and that we can participate in that process by how we treat and respect each other in 2022 and beyond. In your book, you also write about the role of police. Uh, there's about backing the blue. Um, there's a very high number of police officers who are killed in this country. Um, there's also a very high number of people who are killed at the hands of police in this country. You worked with Senator Cory Booker for a very long time on police reform legislation. That fell apart. One thing, though, is in your statement when those things did fall apart, uh, you said you couldn't support something that defunded the police. But was that actually accurate? Because that bill uh, would have spent millions and millions of dollars on new mandates for police, on, on mental health support for police. Um, and so why in that statement did you say that it would have defunded the police? Well, mostly, uh, Leanne, because there were 11 sections that made uh, local law enforcement ineligible for grants if they didn't have uh, they didn't meet a national standard. If you're looking at a department in Chicago or New York, that's one standard. If you're looking at a department in 
rural South Carolina with 10, ten uh, sworn officers, it's a totally different level of expectations. You, you can't have one size fits all. There's a reason why local law enforcement is local. Uh, and so you have to understand the actual terrain where they work. You have to understand the communities where they serve in order to develop the policies. So making a high percentage of the number of law enforcement agencies ineligible for grants is defunding the police. That's not a, uh, that's not a pun. It's not a uh, pointing the fingers on the other side. It's just a fact. The truth is that as we continue to look back at the police reform in initiatives that I've had, going back to 2015, frankly, when I came up with my first piece of legislation to add $100 million for body-worn cameras so that there would be more clarity on those interactions with law enforcement, or my next iteration, the Justice Act, where we provided resources for training and we, we, we gathered more material, more information on the stops. We did a, a really good job, frankly, in my opinion, to try to see that both sides of that ledger again to make sure we understood what's happening within our communities. But perhaps the most important point, uh, Leanne, is that there's no binary choice between the law enforcement officers and the communities of color. That's a false binary. In order to support the communities that desperately need and want more policing, African-Americans, 80% want the same level of policing or more, we have to support more resources for law enforcement. And you've seen that turn happen in this uh, administration because of the incredible levels of violent crime that is now sweeping this country. I, I said it back at the end of 2017 or 18 at the failure of the Justice Act that things were going to get worse. That was just my prediction. And I, unfortunately, I see why it's gotten worse. You cannot take funds away from communities in law enforcement and not expect crime to go up. Have you restarted any of those these negotiations with Senator Booker? Could this legislation get done in a future Congress? The Fraternal Order of Police were on board. Some of the police chiefs were on board. Could this happen in the future down the road? Yeah, Leon, I think that it, I think it will happen in the future. We continue our conversations. Uh, have a piece of legislation I've been working on for the last three or four months that we have been at least in some discussions with uh, Senator Booker's office. We're not at a place where we've made it public yet, but we are certainly, the lines are still open and we are thankfully still in conversation. I think that's one of the things that is very helpful. We both have credibility on this topic. We have good rapport and we are trying to address some of the problems though we do it differently. We, we are looking for that one opportunity to be in the same place at the same time. This is not your first book that you have written, but it is a book uh, that has been released about two years before a presidential election. You also have $25 million in the bank for your, uh, your re-election um, in a state where you are very easily going to win in 2022, um, assuming everything goes as it has been going. But so our are you planning, are you exploring or even thinking about perhaps a presidential run for 24? Well, you know, the answer right now is I'm only thinking about my re-election and I appreciate your confidence in my re-election. I'm not sure that every South Carolinian agrees with you. I'm gonna do my very best to make sure that they come to the conclusion that I'm the right candidate for the right time in this year of 2022. Uh, but if you're thinking beyond that, I, I think it's, 
I, I think it's a, a bad decision. I played a, a little football in my life, and one of the things I learned during my football seasons was only focus on the next game. Nothing else matters. If you don't win this one, it doesn't matter. And I want to make sure that this game is successful. And frankly, having grown up in a single-parent household, mired in poverty to find myself in the United States Senate, it is a blessing from the people of South Carolina and the good Lord. So I'm excited about where I am, and I hope to continue to earn the, the support of my bosses, the constituents here at, in South Carolina. One person is thinking ahead beyond the midterm elections, and that's Donald Trump. Is he someone you could support? Should he run for president again? Yeah, once again, uh, as I said, you guys must have wanted me to write a book about President Donald Trump because you keep talking about Donald Trump more than you do the book. But I will just say that without any question that I think the four years of 2016 okay. to 2020 when President Trump was in office were four of the most successful years that we had from a policy standpoint and, frankly, from bringing more resources into minority communities. So would I like to see four more years of that? I certainly would. I, I will say this. I'll go one step further. The, the, the success that can be measured in the African-American community specifically is incredible. We brought funding to the highest level in the history of the country for historically black colleges and universities. We made the funding permanent for the first time. Uh, through my office, we led on, on policies for more research on sickle cell anemia. We saw unemployment rates hit the lowest ever recorded for African-Americans. Hispanics, Asians, 70-year low for women, 50-year low for the overall population of the country. We also saw 7 million jobs created, with two-thirds going to Hispanics, African-Americans, and women. So we had the most inclusive economy. We had a focus on historically black colleges and universities. And, oh, we just lost the feed. Oh, no. Senator, we can still hear you if you can continue, because I have one question about your book that I really want to ask you. Senator. Okay, so I guess that uh, we lost the senator, unfortunately, but that was about 30 minutes. Please, um, it is actually a delightful book, America of Redemption. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to, we're getting the senator back because I do have, want to hear what he has to say. But anyway, his book is America, a Redemption Story. Um, you will learn a lot about the senator. Okay, hi, Senator. Um, Did you just cut me off because my answer was too long, Leanne? <laughs> I promise, I promise I had nothing to do with that. I can't vouch for our control room, but I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I, I knew I liked you for several reasons, but it's just, just next time say, your answer's too long, Tim, stop talking. I appreciate that next time. <laughs> Um, I do have I do have a question though um, about Thanks, your book. This is very this book is very hopeful in a time yeah. in our country that doesn't feel very hopeful for a lot of people on the left and the right. So, what should people take away from this, and what do you recommend for getting past this point? Yeah. Well, Leanne, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, America Redemption Story, is because my life is filled with pain and misery uh, and, and, and false starts, to be honest with you. I, I've had to learn to fail forward. Uh, as I discuss in the book, failing uh, four subjects in my, my freshman year in high school because I was disillusioned and angry about what was possible for me as a kid living in poverty, 
uh, being able to graduate from high school on time and going to college on a very small football scholarship. I was not as good of an athlete as you you were, Leanne. But the truth is, having that opportunity gave me a second chance. In business, I had the same experience. In politics, I've lost a race. And in life, I've, I've faced racism and challenges. I want people in this country to know that despite our differences, despite our challenges, despite our failures, that the beauty of America is we get up one more time and we start all over again. And because of that, we've become the greatest nation on earth. In my book, you'll, le you'll learn how to overcome the challenges, how to take your obstacles and turn them into opportunities, and how to take your pain and turn it into your purpose. It is a story of America, and it's a story of so many, I think, millions of American families. Um, Senator, we also have one other, one thing in common. Um, as you mentioned, we were both athletes. We both were overtired athletes and both fell asleep driving and crashed oh, our no. cars. Yes, wow. I did the exact same thing. 4.30 in the morning, headed to swim practice, and I, it was oh. it was devastating. Yours, though, changed the trajectory of your life. You couldn't play football um, as much any longer. So you can read about that. You could read about much more about Senator Tim Scott um, in this very personal memoir, including about his chief of staff, which was one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, yeah. Read it, America and a Redemption Story. Senator Scott, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Leanne. I look forward to signing that book to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.